Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is just after the 8 p.m. hour here on May the 2nd. A bit of a cold and dreary day here in Boston seems to uh, seems to follow the atmosphere uh, that has kind of come about after two two sort of disappointing sports uh, experiences over the last couple of days. Um, I know you're a big Bruins guy. I myself am. I follow the Celtics pretty closely and it's been been a tough day for, for Boston sports fans, but I'm like, I'm curious what you think about these, these teams that kind of run roughshod through the regular season and get to the playoffs. And all of a sudden it's a different story. Yeah. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times we, we talked previously on episodes about how we love the spring in part because it's such a great sports season. You have, not only baseball starting up, but the NBA playoffs, the NHL playoffs. And it just feels like for cities like Boston, we've been lucky enough where there's like a game every night. The bees are playing one night, the Celtics are playing the next, but that is no longer the case after the bees crashed out in historic fa- fashion. As you mentioned, very sad for a lot of reasons. If you're a Boston sports hater, you're rejoicing over the last 48 hours. If you're a Boston sports fan, it's, Honestly, devastating, heartbreaking to watch Patrice Bergeron out there crying and then get the cells in the same building 24 hours later blowing this lead. Hopefully they don't they can rebound. But yes, Ricky, it's 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 an emotional roller coaster. But that's that's the life we sign up for. And we're lucky enough here in Boston that we've had so much success and played in so many big games that the, the wins, the highs, you know, we have the highest highs, the lowest, the lows. I I gotta I gotta wonder how you how you feel about it because I I listened to this very interesting uh, interview that Giannis Attentacompo did after the Bucks loss and it's it's been getting some traction because it was a they caught him in kind of this like raw moment and I thought he gave a pretty brilliant answer he was asked basically so the Bucks had a very similar path or like similar situation to the Bruins right best best record in the regular season. They lost uh, to the eight seed Miami Heat and their star player, Giannis Attentacompo, was asked, you know, do you consider this season a failure? And he I thought he gave this like brilliant answer in that, like, not, you know, no, not everyone's going to win every year, but you don't necessarily consider the years that you didn't achieve the highest of your goals as a failure, given, you know, that 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 team had quite a few achievements as did the Bruins <clears throat> obviously most most wins in the regular season of all time so two massive achievements you know harkens back to the Patriots of 0708 who went undefeated until obviously the final game but it's like actually kind of like a unique not unique thing but you know the biggest other sports league outside of the US the Premier League is basically a season league. And then they have in-season tournaments like the FA Cup and then the UEFA Cup. 
but winning the regular season is a huge, huge deal and arguably the biggest deal um, in, in that league. And wondering how you feel about that. Cause the tournament has, you know, certain elements to it that make it obviously some of the most exciting times in sports, but does it really determine the best team? No, I, I guess like, sure. But I mean, that's uh, what, what's a ridiculous question. Like th- those are just like, they're just totally different things that the soccer runs on just the seed. They're just crowd the season long champion. And that's what everyone's playing for it. Everyone in North American major sports knows that's not what you're playing for. So it's they're just, they're just different setups. I think, I, I, I think it's an interesting debate in terms of like, what do you, what do you value? Like if the, if like the entire thing about a season is to figure out which is the best team, like how do we figure that out? We have the regular season. It just determines seeding and then it almost counts for nothing as you, as you said. And I don't disagree that that's kind of the impression that we all have going into the playoffs and, you know, like college is doing this too. I don't know. It's something I, I think about because I don't, I don't necessarily know if it's the best thing, but it does. Um, uh, it, yeah, it's all, it's almost just like very different. Well, Adam Silver is trying to make the NBA into like the Premier League, so maybe he's on the same wavelength as you, and we'll we'll get regular season champions down down the line some way. But who knows? I, I, Ricky, I know we sometimes joke out like we we should just make this a sports podcast, and, that, and you and I can just do that all day like we can with this political stuff. But people do not turn tune in to hear our sports takes. So what what else we got? That's so true. What well, what what do we have? I know we've got our uh our regularly irregularly occurring segment we like to call six and sixty. So what are we uh what are we covering today? Yeah, there's been a lot in the news that we wanted to touch on and we want to touch on relatively short times. Again, if if you're a new listener, we haven't we've done this a couple times. Uh, usually like once a quarter, I'd say we do this one. There's like a bunch of news stories that we want to hit, but don't necessarily want to hit for an extended period of time. And so we try to limit ourselves just 10 minute segments on this, like are the main points that we want to get out in the, there's been a lot in the news, like I said, that we do want to hit on, including the situation over at Fox News, uh, Supreme Court ethics, the impending debt limits, the first Republic bank situation, Unfortunately, more numerous shootings that have occurred throughout the country, President Biden announcing his re-election. And so we're going to hit on all of those in the next 60 minutes, 10 minutes each. We've got good feedback on this format before. If you like it, please let us know. And if you don't like it, please let us know that too. But uh, we we think this is a nice way to, to try to hit a, a lot of topics in a relatively short period of time. Before we get into it, Ricky podcast is brought to you by the hardware craftsman over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. And if you are a sports fan that has been disappointed in this last few days, last few weeks, the impending few weeks potentially, there's no better place to console yourself than around a, a Cannon Hill wood table or desk, or better yet, in the case of my home, Ricky, a Cannon Hill wood made bar. Oh, yes. For, uh, for drowning your sports induced sorrows, uh, a homemade bar is very, uh, very useful. Speaking, speaking of such, uh, happy belated birthday to you. It was great. Great celebrating with you last week. Ah, well, thank you, sir. All right. Well, 
without further ado, let's uh, let's get into it. So it's been a big couple of weeks for arguably the number one media company in in the country, Fox News. Certainly, the most controversial media company uh, in the country. First of all, they had been sued uh, for defamation by the Dominion Voting Systems based on all of their statements regarding around like the allegedly stolen election and how Dominion Voting Systems and these voting machines and the people behind them were were rigging the election in favor of, of President Biden. So that had been playing out over the last two plus years and was slated to go to trial two weeks ago. And then the morning of the trial, they were they were supposed to be in trial that afternoon. They had picked a jury. Everyone was, Ricky, you know what that process is like. Uh-huh. They were ready to go. And then all of a sudden, they they reached a deal. They, they came to a settlement for $787.5 billion, which is a landmark settlement. Blows... 700 million with an M. Yes. They're, they're, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like uh, Dr. Evil. <laughs> uh, no, so this is, they were, Dominion was uh, seeking $1.6 billion and they settled for $787.5 million and a landmark settlement massively you know, blows out of the water any previous settlement. And then on the heels of that announcement, Fox releases a, a Stunning news that they were parting ways with their number one personality, their breadwinner, their primetime ratings. You know, Bonanza Tucker Carlson is is out after a long tenure at Fox News, almost seven years in that primetime spot. And spot he had been a contributor for many years before that, and really it seemed out of nowhere. But of course, these incidents are connected. So. Ricky, what, what were some of your initial takes on either or both of those situations at Fox News? Oh, man, I wish it went to trial. Um, I think it is is really how I felt about it. All right. So I kind of wish that, too. And I think it would have been a, a fascinating trial. And obviously, Ricky, you and I talked about this extensively about why people go to trial or not go to trial when we reflected on your jury duty. And what I had said as you know, budding defense attorney is that, like, you're only going to trial if you think you can win the case. And the fact that Fox settled the case tells me that, one, they were worried that they could not win this case. And two, that a trial would have been even more embarrassing for them than all the leaks from the discovery had been for them. And that's really why Demi was able to secure such a massive settlement number here, because and it's a huge credit to Dominion's lawyers in the discovery process is they got so much of the internal communications between the Fox team, uh, like the, the different players in the Fox universe, the, the commentators, the guests, the execs, the producers, all of that. They got all of that. And, and some of those were leaked to the public. But if we're on trial for weeks, all of that stuff would have been out in the world for everybody to see. And so I completely understand, despite the massive sum that Fox is going to fork over, why they decided it wasn't their best interest not to do that. But to the point of, like, from a legal perspective, Ricky, I also was interested to see it go to trial. Media companies are largely shielded from lawsuits like this. The bar is really high for a plaintiff to be able to prove that they were defamed by a, a media organization. It's a landmark, like, uh, 1960 case. It's New York Times v. Sullivan. And the court, I think it was a unanimous decision, 9-0, said that the plaintiff, the one bringing the complaint, would have to prove that the 
media company acted with actual malice. And malice in this case is kind of a legal term of art. It doesn't mean like meanness because Ricky, how times have changed. The justices thought there was no way that a media company would intentionally defame someone else. Like they, like they were, they would, they couldn't imagine that being a situation. So malice here would be that they acted with like reckless disregard for the truth. They knew or should have known something was false and they said it anyway. And so the bar is really high because like, that's a really difficult thing to prove. And the fact that Fox settled it tells you a lot. Yeah. I mean, as I, I think exactly, as you said, like proving defamation against media companies has proven to be basically impossible uh, based on that standard. And the idea of something like this going to trial would have been interesting if only because there were a lot of pieces of evidence that they knew or should have known a lot of the information they were spreading, particularly about Dominion, but also just the election in general was false or they should have known that it was false. Um, And that I mean, it would have been interesting to see if that bar was met in this case, what that would portend for media companies more broadly. But I think in general, like, right, the idea behind, obviously, a settlement is not quite the same as like punitive damages, but it has a lot of the same effect in terms of this is a scary number if you're thinking about, you know, like being kind of a fly-by-night media operation. And obviously there's some other, well, that I would put Fox in that category. Um, so potentially says a lot. But there are others that like the Newsmax and like others that are potentially seeing this and thinking, oh boy, like what are we what are we in for here? Obviously Fox is in the unique position that they can pay um, rather than kind of go bankrupt and just go away. Yeah, and I think that segues nicely into the Tucker Carlson situation. Again, as I said, it was stunning. I remember like when I got the, you know, the buzz on my phone, the headline, I was, oh my goodness. I because it it seemingly came out of nowhere. Obviously it didn't, and it's very much connected directly to the Dominion lawsuit. Not necessarily that Tucker was going to be the face of that lawsuit. I think there were like 20 episodes of or shows that they that Dominion zeroed in on, and Tucker had one of them. So there was actually kind of people that were much farther to his right that were the real target for Dominion in terms of the things that they were saying. But what happened is, again, when a lot of the communications amongst Fox employees became not only public to people, but also the executives of Fox, the Murdochs, got to see a lot of what Tucker was saying, essentially bashing his employees, his his bosses, everyone uh, at, at Fox News. And there was just too much for them. All of the, the Dominion stuff, the the fact that he kind of gave the vibe that he could do what he wanted, all of the controversy that he stirred up over the years, it was eventually, this was just like the straw that broke, broke the camel's back. But it's, we've talked a lot about him, Ricky. He really is singular in, in news media at this point. There's, I don't think there's anyone that touches his level of fame or influence over the discussion for better or in a lot of cases for worse. But it's just like kind of his evolution is fascinating in a lot of ways. Like someone's going to write a great biography of him someday where he he came up in like the 90s as a legitimate conservative thinker. It like it with a, a guy with ideas and was on like Crossfire um, 
with like against uh like john stewart like some of those clips are like super like quote unquote they would have gone viral if they happened today but this is from back in like the the 90s and early 2000s he was he hosted a show on msnbc he was on cnn he was a contributor on fox news and another thing that came out with his communications ricky is that like he didn't believe the stuff that he was saying he was ripping trump behind his back he was ripping all these election deniers and then he would get on the air and say a lot like say a lot of things in beha- like on behalf of those people and that's where i've i've kind of carried Tucker water for Car- tucker carlson before that's where he's like a a truly dangerous person where he's he's there's no doubt that he's a really smart guy really articulate guy but for all that stuff to come out where he he knows for a fact that he does he he thinks this is all garbage and then he gets on the air and passionately and intelligently explains like why people should believe it dangerous he's the ultimate con man and it's actually i don't know if you recall but i remember bringing up to you this story that he was airing during like the you know initial fallout from the election where he got this like random guy from philadelphia who was like talking to him about how his bookie knew that somebody was like fixing the election and you can just see on his face he's got the weird stern like look of concern but like there's like a part of his, the corner of his smile that he just can't keep in because he's hearing how absolutely absurd this story is that this guy's telling, but he's got to nod along and be like, so you saw them stuff the ballots and he's like, well, I, you know, I didn't really see him, but like, I heard it from this other guy who heard the, and he's just like, yeah, I mean, this is exactly what they do. This is what they do. And then all of a sudden he like flips the switch and gets into this angry mode. And I was like, holy shit, that's that's pretty good. And you know what's funny? I actually, like, I don't know how it's coming up on my Instagram now, but they had some clips of, like, John Stewart and Tucker Carlson going back and forth. And John Stewart was, to his credit, was, like, on to him way back then. He's like, you are way too smart to be saying some of the shit that you're saying, and I know that you're doing it because you know that you're finding an audience here and that, like, this is good for you personally, but it's bad for everybody else. Yeah, and that's exactly how it's going to be. And, and that's how it's been for years. I, I think a couple things. I don't know that we want to give credit to Fox, given everything we've said in the last 10 minutes, but like better late than never in some ways. And I think a lot of people like Don Jr. got on uh, you know, whatever podcast he was normally on and uh, said that he was like, well, this is going to be good for conservatives and Republicans because Tucker's finally free to really say like the truth now. Like he's not going to be held back by any limitations that Fox was placing on him. And when I first saw it, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is going to be a huge get for somebody. Maybe if it's a mainstream news channel, if it's Spotify, if he just goes independent. But then I was doing some more reading. And you think of these major personalities that have been at Fox in particular, because they are brilliant at creating these personalities. But you think of people like Megyn Kelly, massive star five years ago. What's she doing now? Bill O'Reilly had the spot, had Tucker's time slot before Tucker. Yeah, he's out there, but no one pays attention. Glenn Beck, Ricky, from back from back in the day, he was one of those original stars. Haven't heard of him in in fifteen years, you know. And so, Tucker's not going away tomorrow. But Fox needed Tucker, and Tucker needed Fox, and I think both of them, in some ways, will will suffer from from this. But I'm not I'm not crying that it happened. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, maybe the parting thought because I think it actually does dovetail nicely with the with the situation with Don Lemon, because as much as like you think, you know, finally Fox had enough. I think the problem is, is more so 
we're seeing with this cable news model in that we do want these people who are magnetic, they're energetic, they get viewers. But the problem is if they espouse enough views that people find controversial, the cable model says we want viewers and for the viewers, we'll get advertisers that you can show your stuff to. But the problem is advertisers don't want to be linked with people who say controversial things. And so the cable news outlets are hampered in a way that, you know, whatever the Twitch stream that charges $2 for you to hang on to on a monthly basis do not because they need the advertisers to also effectively co-sign on the thing. And so I think like there was a stat about like Fox News during Tucker segment was basically airing like my pillow ads on repeat because that was like the only thing that they could use. And so that was while the viewership was massive and it probably spilled over into other segments and had like a lot of benefits for them. At the end of the day, I think there was like on top of all of the inner sort of inner workings of Fox and the strife internally, that there's sort of an idea that we can't, I mean, if we depend on advertisers, we can't maintain a contract with somebody like Tucker Carlson for the long term. Obviously, they've been very handsomely rewarded for for what he had provided to the network for a long time. But I think in looking to the future, maybe they're just trying to to mint their their next star. Yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting time for media in general. Like you mentioned, not only is Tucker out, but Don Lemon's out at CNN, and they're you know across the spectrum. Companies have been laying people off in, in recent weeks from some of like the quote unquote new media that people thought were going to take off like Vice and BuzzFeed, but the traditional media too, NPR, uh, Washington Post, CBS, CNN. And so um, it's definitely like that interesting inflection point in a lot of ways where cable news and media in general just grew exponentially in the Trump years. And they made, in, whether it was Fox or CNN, made, made their mo- money and got their viewers based on really kind of being out there and th- their takes and when you don't have that anymore, there might, I don't know, Ricky, I don't want to be overly optimistic, but that's my nature. And, uh, you know, maybe this is a, a bit of a return to some sense of like responsible journalism. We can hope. We can hope. Next, next subject. Next subject. From one ethical conversation, ethical dilemma to the next, Ricky, we want to get into What's been going on over at the Supreme Court? Almost a month ago now, uh, ProPublica came out with a sprawling report detailing Clarence Thomas's lavish lifestyle, essentially. Those included trips within the United States, vacations across the world, trips on private jets and private yachts, and really just a Clarence and Ginny Thomas seem to be living uh, quite the life these days. And obviously, it, it's funded by a Harlan Crow, who is uh, also happens to be, um, perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, uh, a, a mega donor for Republican causes. And those trips were not just for Clarence and Ginny Thomas, but are often accompanied by other high profile people in the business world, in the legal world. You know, th- these people, in, in a lot of ways, as everyone knows, tend to run in small circles, but those small circles don't tend to incorpor- uh, include Supreme Court justices, or maybe they do more than we think. 
But just this morning, Ricky, um, so again, this is May 2nd. This morning, the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, held a hearing on Supreme Court ethics reform. I don't think this has been something that has been a, a pet cause of certain left-wing senators in recent years as the court has somewhat gotten away from him post the, the Trump appointees. But this is just another signal to them and maybe to more people now that the Supreme Court needs a code of ethics. Uh, a lot of our listeners are probably aware that all federal judges are subject to a, a code of ethics, except for the Supreme Court justices. They are they really don't answer to anybody um, and they're supposed to disclose certain like uh, financial things. But there, a lot of things are really left up to their discretion, what they disclose. And that's essentially what Justice Thomas said was that, like, I didn't didn't know that I couldn't do that. Uh, and Dave Chappelle reference for anybody out there. Um, so, yeah, it's it, with all of the controversy surrounding the Supreme Court in recent years, this is just one of those uh, another 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 body blow for them yeah it's most definitely not a good look as i as i like to say in these situations that i mean it's not i guess not unique or like the the type of action that's sort of being called for um i want to say like against the supreme court but i guess it's more just like to reform some of these things are potentially just adding this code of ethics is not not exactly unique, right? We've heard similar conversations around like Congress people and what they what stocks they own, what companies they're invested in, and what committees they serve on, right? There are all kinds of these like moral hazards where it's like, how can you be said to like be working in favor of or on behalf of? the country as a whole when you have a vested income in a specific outcome or right like you're just generally you you you're incentivized by friends or otherwise to 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 do certain things whether you're a supreme court justice to rule in certain ways or if you're a congressperson on a certain committee to decide to fund a certain project or give approval to a certain pipeline or whatever it is right like there are all kinds of areas in which your judgment that we're asking for you to work on behalf of the American people can be compromised because you have personal interests that conflict. I don't know. We've talked about kind of the idea that even like past precedent, how presidents act in certain situations that like a lot of it is just based on like expectation. And these are the norms. And this is like, the institution just has to operate based in part on like the good faith of the people who are in it. And does adding layers of bureaucracy and red tape and additional disclosures, does that really get us to the outcome that we want? Or do we need to in part just be very cognizant of the people that we are putting in these places and hoping that they do the right thing when the when the time arises and that, or maybe they go on this yacht, but they can still separate it when they go to write their decision or cast a vote in a certain way. I don't know. I, I tend to believe that like, yeah, removing the opportunity for, for sin is the better approach. And so something like a code of ethics can be helpful but I think your point, which was a very good one is that like, you can't foresee all of the things 
that people can and or could or could not be conflicted with or can have some type of perverse incentive. And so to some degree, how much effort do you spend trying to police all of these things when, right, that's just going to detract from doing other potentially more important business? I don't know. That's that's kind of how I've thought about it based on how this, to me, feels like it's a similar problem. Sure. And for Congress, I think it's a really, your point's well taken, for Congress to now be all up in arms about uh, this alleged inappropriate behavior happening at the Supreme Court when they refuse to police themselves is hypocritical at best. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're wrong, that like that we shouldn't be doing both those things. And I think the thing that's most disappointing to for me about this, Ricky, is that like this isn't a, a new conversation. The, the justice of the Supreme Court could have set their own code of ethics at any time in their history, and certainly within the last decade, when they faced a little bit more scrutiny. And for the hearing today, there was some written testimony by a federal circuit court judge, former federal circuit court judge, J. Michael Luddig, who's a fairly famous, well, um, influential conservative judge. And he he wrote, I'm going to quote him here, he said, the court's power is greater or lesser as respect for its judgments by, by the American people waxes and wanes, ebbs and flows. It is the Supreme Court's duty to acquit itself in the discharge of judicial responsibilities so as to continually assure and reassure the American people that its judgments are deserving of respect. And Ricky, I've I defended the Supreme Court. You know, this is another one where I've gone to battle for this court in the last two years about some the decisions that they've made, even if they're not popular decisions, because I think that they are they are fair decisions. You might not like the decisions, you might disagree with the decisions, but they're kind of, in my opinion, they're doing their job. But when you already have so much backlash against the court, when you already have people saying that we should expand the court, or even hinting that we might we should just not follow certain you know, court orders, lower courts in particular, you can't have this stuff going on. You, you just can't. Like you you have to be, if, if you're gonna be really in the mud in your opinions, you have to be squeaky clean on, on the outside. To have both of those things simultaneously where there's the image, uh, there's just the idea, the slightest idea of impropriety outside of what you're doing. And then we see results that people already think are partisan, just can't have it. Like it, like that's, if I'm Roberts, man, you just can't have it. Like it, you got to do better than that. Yeah. I, I, I do agree that this is just like fuel to the fire for the folks that want to say that, or yeah, for the folks that want to impugn sort of the impartiality of the court. I think it's, uh, very it seems very blatant and brazen and i clarence thomas's like excuse was like ah when i got it when i first got to the supreme court i just like asked other people is this chill and they were like yeah man do what you do what you want no rules and he was like all right fuck it (laughs) like what (laughs) that was a i mean for somebody who is like seemingly so like measured and he's got his like core principles that he sticks to and he lives and dies by this whole thing was a, a revelation of sort of like another side. Like I obviously don't agree with many of his positions on anything, but this particularly was just like almost just laughable to me. No, it is a little bit. I can just picture like Roberts in his chambers, like with his head in his hands, being like, damn it, Clarence. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh this is not a laughing matter but it is it is i mean what are you gonna do you gotta laugh at some of these things sometimes yeah that's right you gotta laugh to keep from crying with that on to the next There are some ethical implications to this story too, Ricky, as over the weekend, J.P. Morgan swooped in and bought First Republic Bank. That might not mean any or seem like an important story on the surface, but this is right. This is like a sense of deja vu, Ricky. I feel like 15 years ago, it's 2008, 2009, Bear Stearns has collapsed. And who's there to pick up the pieces, make a nice little profit for themselves? Oh, Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan. And here they are again. So this follows from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which we talked about extensively uh, last, I guess, a few episodes ago. Now, uh, addition to the trouble that Signature Bank in New York City had gone into. And then First Republic is now the third bank to have been similarly leveraged by a lot of unincorporated, um, uninsured uh, FDIC like investments. And so once in, investors in, in the bank and people were keeping their money there, realized that their money could be at risk, similar to how it was in Signature Valley or I mean, at Silicon Valley or Signature Bank, um, there was a run, First Republic. Yeah, sorry. I mean, it's all kind of, they're all, they all sound the same to me, Ricky. And it sounds like they were all acting the same. Um, but there was a bit of a run. First Republic reported uh, massive losses in the past quarter that their shares were down something like incredible over in the last week and it looks like they were going to be insolvent the fed stepped in over the weekend to try to sell off their assets they essentially held a bidding war for it i know citizens was involved in it and um, maybe one other bank that was that was there uh but you know jp morgan got it and this of course brings up some of the same issues that we had been talking about before uh Prior to buying First Republic, J.P. Morgan already accounted for, I believe, like 10% of all like deposits in the United States. This is going to add another 3% to that. So they're up to 13% of, of all you know, investments in, in the United States. And of course, there's the outcry of, are we getting back into these banks that are too big to fail? To fail? Jamie Dimon, the CEO, is... Uh, is, is not phased by those criticisms. He said, quote, we need large, successful banks in the largest and most prosperous economy in the world. And it just, it, obviously Biden comes out and hails this as like, oh, this doesn't cost taxpayers any money, which it doesn't in the, in the short term. All of this, this is really the shareholders that lose things, which I guess I suppose that they do. But, and everyone pats themselves on the back and JP Morgan says like, you know, we're kind of we got we bailed out. We prevented the the financial crisis just like we did 15 years ago. And it just as the more things change, Ricky, the more they seem to stay the same. <laughs> That's why everybody needs to be in a a, a student of history. I I mean, yeah, it does it does feel like Biden maybe has some contacts that he still had when he was vice president and. uh was just like, hey, I'm getting a lot of flack for doing these bailouts. So can you just you know, buy them? It's uh, it's it's funny. I mean, I think I think that that concept of too big to fail, though, we're sort of seeing that it may not have been the right, although it is like very catchy, may not have been the right uh, phrasing because all of these banks seem to be in that realm of like we cannot let them fail because there are enough other banks that are similar to them that it's going to signal that all of these banks 
are about to go under and then collectively they're too big to fail. And so does it actually matter if we have, you know, four, you know, a JP Morgan, a bank of America, and like maybe Wells Fargo and a couple others, or hundreds of banks that are all basically doing the same thing because the market or interpretation of if one bank goes down, they're all going down similar to like, if one of these giant companies that's invested in mortgage-backed securities, if like some houses start to go under, they're all going to go under. And and there is, I mean, it's like, it's almost, it's more of a criticism of just our, like the overall system that we've drummed up for ourselves and how interrelated it is to me than it is particularly of like, oh, or should we be worried about JP Morgan kind of consolidating it's like yeah my opinion is of course we should but does that mean it's better or worse than the current situation i don't really know um i've long believed that in part it's better to have more options but from a regulatory standpoint when these companies are doing all kinds of different things all the time you know if you don't want to be investing like dollar for dollar into the irs and the sec and all this stuff to keep up with them then you need to have just a handful of large institutions that you can really scrutinize because otherwise like it's just impossible to keep up with what they're doing and so we have we have this just like real conundrum to try and deal with and yeah it's it's definitely scary i don't know like which direction is the scarier though perhaps that's totally fair and i think that's an argument that the big banks have made in recent weeks where historically big banks are actually safer than smaller banks because they have more reserves and that just i think logically intuitively that makes sense but obviously the problem is when the big banks do fail that's it's a catastrophic in a way that silicon valley bank failing by itself was not but you're not wrong that that essentially sent a domino effect where if the Fed didn't step in, if JP Morgan didn't step in, that would have had a similar catastrophic effect. So yeah, I agree that neither of those are good. I don't I feel like this this is just like a red meat episode for like Senator Warren. Like she's just got these are all her main issues are just all like on the table today. But I it, I think the problem, Ricky, when we talked about this in a, the previous episode when we went on the deep dive in Silicon Valley Bank is that all after the the 2008-2009 financial crisis, there was intense scrutiny and regulations put on the biggest banks to make sure that, that we didn't have another like Bear Stearns situation. But what happened was a lot of the mid-sized banks, the Silicon Valleys and the First Republics, then were kind of free. They were like they didn't have that same scrutiny. And look what happened to them. So maybe Ricky, maybe the the, the answer isn't different. Like maybe like they we do need to be scrutinizing. And like you said, that takes time and money to do and in and, and willpower to do. And I'm not sure that a lot of people that are in positions of power want that to happen. I mean, I'm actually quite sure that they do not. Uh, so it makes it even more difficult to do. But it, it does seem that like when we allow banks to run unfettered, eventually this is what happens. Yeah, I, I, I think that that is... That's definitely true. And I, I I mean, I think it's it's really based on the way that we forecast how the future is going to play out. And it's largely based on how the past has played out. And so, like, we get into these scenarios where, okay, we haven't had inflation in 20 some odd years. So a bank that's making decisions based on the prospect of increased inflation 
is it's not wise for them to think, okay, we're going to have inflation tomorrow or the next year. And in response to that, the Fed's going to do this, right? Like we looked at why Silicon Valley Bank was in the trouble that it was in, primarily because a lot of the long-term bonds that they held were going to do poorly if the Fed raised interest rates. The Fed hadn't raised interest rates in 10 whatever years, just like back in 2008, housing markets was appreciating like at a record pace. And it didn't matter that some of the investors in those homes couldn't pay the bills because you could just sell their home and the whatever the loan was secured. So this problem is like a problem of foresight. Like we cannot necessarily foresee these unforeseen things, Russia invading Ukraine, other, you know, COVID and all that other stuff. And so how do we create a banking system that allows for people to make money and grow and invest in new inventions and things that we want as part of a very capitalist driven market and economy while also protecting ourselves in the back end. It is a balance between this red tape and lack of red tape. And Uh I think that's the, I think the interesting thing is how much politicians seize on these moments to, to try and figure out, who can we paint as the, like the evil person here and sort of grab onto that? And no doubt there are some people who are doing some things that they shouldn't be doing and probably know they shouldn't be doing them. But by and large, there's so many like average people that work in these sectors and they're just like trying to make decisions based on uncertain events in the future. And sometimes they collectively get things very wrong <laughs> and it's, Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I feel like you're you're being like really benefit of the doughty to them there. You know, it's like we, we wouldn't accept and I know these are different, but we wouldn't accept doctors that get things like catastrophically wrong and be like, oh, it only happens once every 15 years. Well, this is a disaster. You know, like Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I, I think that's true. Like, right, a, a doctor that makes a mistake that, you know, like they didn't see that some patient had a disease that is a one in you know, 500,000 chance of occurring, you could be like, how did you not know that? But also, well, I've seen 499,000 other patients and none of them had this. And so I just kind of assumed that this wouldn't happen. And that was wrong. And that it turned out to be like the worst thing, right? And obviously we can look at the results and make sort of a hindsight judgment on, on what they did or should have done. But the question is like, right we look at our the growth in our economy as a result of like th- this is like a republican mantra of removing red tape of like unleashing the economy and the idea is that like yes you can do that and good things happen very bad things will also happen and now we're in one of those situations and so we'll, we'll like we'll find out i oddly enough have come to the realization that i don't but like there is a balance I'm not sure we ever strike it right because something like this happens. We're going to go probably in the next five years to some type of over-regulatory landscape. And then over time, we'll peel it back and peel it back until another catastrophe happens. It feels like we're doomed to repeat ourselves here, but I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for the second time in in like this episode, Ricky, I don't know. It just got me laughing instead of crying. (laughs) With that, on to the next. So we're going from one nearly missed 
financial catastrophe to a potentially impending financial catastrophe. As Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, came out yesterday, May 1st, and said that the United States could hit the hard cap and start defaulting on its debts as early as June 1st. Now, it might be later than that by a few days or a few weeks. It's hard to know exactly. But this ramps up the pressure on everybody to avoid hitting that debt ceiling. So we've talked about this briefly before. And this is like, or yeah, I said this to you when we were texting about different topics. I was like, this isn't like the sexiest thing to talk about. But this is a thing that is going to affect more people than anything, like than any other really situation that's that's kind of currently happening in the country if, if we do default in June. So the debt ceiling is has existed, uh, was passed by Congress in 1917. So over 100 years now. If Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling, the government can't borrow any more money. And because it doesn't have enough money as it is, it might not be able to pay its bills on time. And so that's they're not going to be able to pay their bondholders who are regular citizens of the United States and our countries and people, uh, governments all over the world. If the United States can't pay their their debts, this is going to tip the United States into a recession and drastically impact the global economy. So the United States needs to raise the debt limit in order to keep issuing bonds, which investors can keep buying, which then funds the government projects. Unlike state governments, which are all constitutionally mandated by their state constitutions to run a balanced budget, the federal constitution has no such balanced budget. It's been kind of bandied about about a balanced budget amendment, but not there's not there's been no serious movement on that. So every year, again, as this is not surprising to anybody, although it is like shocking in the fact that it happens, the United States federal government spends more money than it takes in, which has led to this escalating debt that we have. It's the current cap is at $31.5 trillion. It has risen almost exponentially in the last 20 years under all administrations, uh, Bush, Obama, uh, Trump, uh, and now under Biden, it continues to rise. Until recently, it was pretty routine for Congress to just raise the debt ceiling. You can argue whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, but in the last 60 years, Congress has raised it 78 times, including three times under President Trump. Republicans are refusing to raise it this time unless they get concessions from the White House. The White House is refusing to negotiate on that. So, Ricky, we are now less than one month out from potentially catastrophically defaulting on our debts. And we have two sides that are dug in and don't seem to want to budge. Yeah, well, I think they like a little bit of this, the drama. I mean, this isn't the last time. This isn't, I mean, you don't have to go that far into the Wayback Machine to when these... (laughs) the most recent rounds of these kinds of discussions kind of went to the 11th hour. Some even spilled over and like required some furloughs of federal employees and like some other things that are, I, I shouldn't make light of them, but like very serious consequences for, um, for people who get directly impacted. And of course, as you said, uh, we have obligations under our financial system for, bondholders um and and like really there are like an untold number of consequences and repercussions that kind of reverberate out 
with the prospect of the U.S. government kind of defaulting on its obligations. That being said, it's there's so much like political theater that goes on in this in these types of things and there's really just it's like almost like all right do we feel like the american people are blaming us or them if it's them we hold on for dear life until like we get to the very end if it's us then we maybe like see what we can do and i think mccarthy's like kind of trying to do like some things but now he's realizing that he doesn't have as much control of congress as i don't think he's realizing i think he's known that for a long time but um that that there's kind of some issues there in terms of getting the sort of the more extreme parts of his party in in some kind of a direction where some kind of negotiation can happen and of course the Biden administration is equally being uh, obstinate is probably yeah it's probably yeah. a fine fine word to to describe this situation I don't I don't know what to make of it because it seems like when push comes to shove, something will happen. I do have to say it is absurd that politicians will still come out and be like, you know, so-and-so is whatever. I think Ted Cruz of all freaking people came out and was like, Biden's playing roulette with the American economy. It's like, come on, dude, this happens every six months. This is not a new game that like all of a sudden somebody's doing something that's unprecedented. We literally do this all the time. And it's, as you noted, equally, I mean, Democrats under Trump were hemming and hawing about certain things and whatever. And so it's like, it's not a new game. It's a one place that when you have a Senate that goes one, it's one way that the House can kind of exert some influence on things that normally they passed off. It goes to the Senate and dies and then it's done. Here, they can kind of hold people hostage for a little bit. They're one like straw of real power, and I would flex it. Yeah, for sure. And McCarthy, to his credit, we talked a lot back in January about how much of a clown show it was trying to get him to get him his dream job of being the speaker. And there was lots of you know, how long would he last in in that in that office? People, you know, many about rumors was it would it be a matter of months or weeks or even days? But he he got his caucus together to pass budget proposal that budget proposal would lift the borrowing limit by 1.5 trillion dollars and it would also cut federal discretionary spending to 2022 levels and impose a one percent growth cap additionally it would recapture some unspent COVID relief funds um, kill biden's proposed student debt cancellation plan uh get back some irs enforcement funding that came uh last year and install some new work requirements for people on programs like Medicaid. You might not like all of the things in there, but this is one of those, like, so I guess I'll say this, Ricky. I don't think the Republicans are wrong here. I would just have more respect for them if they had tried to do some of these same things under the Trump administration. It's the hypocrisy that really kills me because we, like, I keep saying this is like maybe this, you know, sometimes we saw themes emerge in these episodes, just like deja vu. 60, what is it, 78 times I said that we've raised the, the debt ceiling in 60 years? That means nothing then, right? Like if, if we're just going to keep raising it, then why have it at all? It's a joke. 
So, I mean, like, it, it, I think if we kept up the current pace, it's going to hit 50 trillion in the next 10 years. Like, what, that's what does that even mean? So, I mean, it, it, it means nothing. Or, but, like, you know, it's like, it's just nonsense. And so, this is where, like, yeah, the Republicans do have this, like, sliver of power. They do have this chance to try to rein in some spending, which, like, needs to be done clearly. But it's just, it's frustrating to me because, like, how can I take you seriously when you had three opportunities to do this under Trump and no one said a peep about it? Yeah, uh, I mean, I I'd say I'd say there's there's some some fair play to that. I think I think the the real question or reckoning is like what <laughs> what is this debt meaningfully doing to us or not doing to us? Right, like now we're in a slightly different environment as well, where when interest rates are near zero, like you could have basically zero interest bonds paying whatever, effectively nothing. And so you could continue to issue this money. All of a sudden, if Fed funds rate is like close to four or five or whatever it is, and now these bonds are, or the interest on our debt is significantly more expensive. So in addition to raising debt, you have to raise expensive debt. And that's problematic for any buddy or any entity. And yet, like you said, 30 trillion some odd dollars, like that is a made up number. That does not mean anything. There are way too many zeros there. And you raise it by another trillion. What does that mean? And by and large, over the last 20 years, like I, what, what was it since like the Clinton administration, we haven't had any kind of uh, budget surplus, even further yeah. back. No, you're right. I think, yeah, it was exactly. late. Yeah. So we have operated or like our economic growth and prosperity is in part probably due to how much money we spend. It is. No, I know. Yeah. But this 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 is really the problem for me, Ricky, is that like part of our budget every year goes to paying back our debt. And so like we can kind of be like, oh, it's just out there. It doesn't really like make a difference. But like the more and more money that we allocate to paying back our debt, that's just less money we have for actual programs. And so at some point, again, this is like I'm not explaining anything that literally any adult doesn't understand. Like if you if you have to pay back your credit card debt, you can't buy fancy new things. Right. Like it's it's just basic logic. But that just gets lost at the, const- the congressional level. For you, I mean, I did not expect to be all fired up tonight. Right. You got me. You got me going. Now. Yeah. So that's all we try to do. Yeah, I mean, it's it is. I, I mean, I think that 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 is like a, a very important point. I mean, the thing that will additionally irk me is, of course, no looking at our military budget, which makes up a huge, huge portion of our spending. And Rubber stamp that defense bill, Rick, every year. Yeah. yeah, every single time. Like, what are we doing at some point? If if Social Security is something that people specifically need to live on, Medicare, Medicaid, also like basically necessities, our biggest bucket that we can look at is our military spending. And that just gets the freaking carte blanche blank check, sign it and forget it and raise it every single time. Right. Like whatever the proposal was, Biden was like. Throw another hundred billion out of it. Like what? Double it. <laughs> what? And it's just, it's insane. And and the fact that that is also something that gets no traction politically, like as a, as something that needs to be looked at, 
is one of those things that's just like it it, it boggles my mind i i mean i i think i think you're right on all accounts and i would add to it that like what are we doing it's crazy <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing <laughs> all right <laughs> we can leave that one there on to the <laughs> All right, so from one aspect of political theater to another, this uh, in in recent weeks we've had perhaps not a bombshell announcement, but there was a bit of like a will he or won't he, and it now it appears definitively that he will, uh, and that is President Biden will seek re-election um, in twenty twenty four. Go. <laughs> Ricky, I'm going to have to go back and like comb through our clips, but I swear like two plus years ago, I said to you that we're going to get a rematch of of Trump Biden again and God help us all if that happens. And like, I, it's, we got half of it lined up and the other half looking increasingly likely. We'll talk about that in a future episode uh, that it's going to happen. And look, President Biden's message of like finish the job, like that's a very typical message for a a president running for a second term. And he can point to a number of legislative accomplishments that Congress passed last year. You may like them, you may not, but he can point to them. He's going to bring them back to his base and energize them in some ways and say that, look, we're, we're on the right path, but we're not there yet. And you need to give me four more years to do that. We're just not in like he's just not a normal first term president. He I, like it's not comfortable to talk about, but it's just a reality. and It has to be talked about. He's 80 years old right now. By the end of his term, he's going to be 82. If he if he is reelected, he's going to be 83. So all of these things are older than any president had ever been ever. Ronald Reagan, I think it was maybe like 78 or 79. And we know that he had some mental health issues, some medical problems by the end of his term. So President Biden right now is the oldest president in United States history. He's asking for essentially six more years from now. He's going to be 86 years old. And Ricky, we've talked about this with, we briefly, we've talked about in recent episodes with some of these senators who are, we talked with Jenna Sor last week with, you know, unfortunately the Senate with Senator Feinstein or um, Senator Grassley or even Senator McConnell, like, octogenarians like the other people running the country and this is not to be disrespectful to anybody that's over 80 out there but i'm just not sure that any like anybody could say that this is the best person to be running our country at this point and you know what he still might be better than whoever the alternative is like that like how scary is that that's that's my take (laughs) yeah i i i i don't even know that that is a that that is a hot take i think when Biden was elected, he was elected to sort of bring back some sort of semblance of normalcy. And I think to an extent he's done an okay job of that. Like there haven't really been any, like, I mean, besides the, uh, the occasional gaffe, like falling up a flight of stairs on, t- which at 86, the bicycle, that, the that might be a, the bicycle wasn't great. Yeah. <laughs> not great. I think he had a dog that bit somebody or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like the, in the, in the same vein of just like the wake up every morning and see what, what president so-and-so tweeted about something, not having to deal with that stuff for the past couple of years. 
I think that's been okay. Now, policy-wise, like how you feel about what he's been able to accomplish or perhaps hasn't accomplished, I think, depending on what side you're sitting on, um, I think there's plenty to debate about. I I don't I don't know. I, I would agree with you that his age, if like if he was doing if he himself like actually needed to do all the things that he gets credited with doing, I would be very worried. I am I think I'm perhaps less under the illusion that as a president, he has delegated a lot to his staff and to the people that he surrounds himself with perhaps in a way that Trump maybe like did not because of his sort of problems with questioning people's loyalty and stuff like that. I think you can argue about whether that's like a good or a bad thing for a president, but yeah, I don't know. I think that his age will make Kamala Harris's sort of vice presidential debate and that kind of stuff a lot more of a focal point because as a vice president to be honest i have like zero clue what she's doing if anything at all um but it's definitely going to come into play now um because because of his age i like to me that's like the the more i think that's the more interesting aspect of this all like whether or not his like mental state is probably I like, I, yeah, I mean, I would, I would probably agree. He's not the sharpest tool that we could potentially be putting as our president. I think that's like evident, but yeah, Nikki Haley as much. I don't, I'm not entirely sure. Sure. Um, Nikki Haley said something along those lines recently. And she said at a rally that a vote for president Biden was essentially a vote for president Harris. And then, she kind of came across a little insensitive, a little inartful. She was like, realistically, he's probably not going to make it another six years, which is not necessarily like how you'd want to phrase that. Uh, But like, that's, it's a conversation that as uncomfortable as it might be, he's put us, he's put us and put himself in the arena of having that conversation. So one other thing, Ricky, aside from his age that I thought was interesting is that, his campaign, his opening campaign like video is, it presents almost a choice, more freedom or less freedom. And I read some pollster being like, ah, freedom's, freedom's polling really well right now. <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh yeah? Why would you get paid for commissioning that poll? <laughs> but what I thought was, was interesting was that Republicans for a long time, this was what we ran on is is freedom, right? Of like providing people more rights, getting the government out of your lives. And I do think it's a really interesting take that uh, President Biden, like he, what they chose, what his strategist chose for his campaign messages, a freedom message. And I do think, Ricky, if we do, we're going to talk about this way more in the upcoming months and years, but like if we do get like a Biden-DeSantis face-off, I think they're both going to be saying that, a vote for me is a vote for more freedom. And I think that's going to be actually kind of a fascinating debate to have. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And perhaps a perfect transition into our last topic of the evening. I think this uh, conversation of freedoms and which party stands for freedoms always uh, gets back to which freedoms exactly are we talking about? And, one of the freedoms that conservatives 
and the sort of conservative movement has not backed away from in any way, shape or form is the Second Amendment freedom, right, or what have you to own, possess a firearm um, for really whatever reason. And in the last couple of weeks, as is customary, unfortunately, in this country, we've had a number of shooting fatalities. And I wanted to talk about a couple things because I think it's just interesting. It came out in conjunction with um, a recent study about gun violence in America. So the the events that I'm talking about specifically, and I'm probably even missing a few, um, a 20-year-old uh, woman was shot in um, upstate New York, returning from, uh, or her, her and her friends were trying to go to some house and turned up the wrong driveway. And I guess as they turned around to leave, uh, the person in the house shot at their car and ended up killing one of them. Um, a teenager in Missouri knocked on the wrong door. He was like going to somebody's house to pick up his brother, um, ended up on the wrong street and knocked on the wrong house. And um, the owner of the house came out and fired shots at him. I think he survived. Um, he was definitely hospitalized. And then even more recently uh, than that, just a couple of days ago, somebody in Texas was outside in their front yard firing off some shots Neighbors came out and asked if they could keep it down because they were trying to get some babies to go to sleep. And that person effect, uh, essentially just walked into their house and started shooting, um, ended up killing five people, um, injuring some others. And so gun violence, as we know, is not a new phenomenon in America. And we have varying responses from, do we need to come out with new laws? Do we need to whatever is it mental health, whatever it is. The thing I find or the, what was interesting to me is that the, the contrast of what's happening in these types of situations and this sort of pervasive narrative from the conservative side that gun violence and violence in general is worse in blue cities because of crime and that crime is because, you know, whatever they, we don't invest in the police force. Recent study that sort of showed gun violence rates per capita far worse in red states than they are in, in blue states. Even if you control for the gun violence in the blue cities in those red states, red rural like gun violence is still far worse than what you have. You know, your likelihood of dying by a gun, it probably includes suicides, is is higher if you're sort of in rural red America than you, if you are in kind of urban blue America, that's almost irrelevant, right? It's, this is a national problem that we have and we haven't really addressed it. I think what I'm wanted to talk about is like, how the, is this an aspect that doesn't get any traction when, you know, safety in schools by creating laws to, you know, ensure segregation of genders and bathrooms and like all this other stuff that more or less imp impedes on individuals' freedoms gets passed so easily and the gun situation continues to be sort of left alone. Um, it, it, it seems interesting as like a party that is tough on crime and sort of tough on this notion that 
American safety is paramount in which like in order to enjoy any of the freedoms that we have, it definitely is. I don't know where I'm, I don't know where this discussion begins and ends. And I know we kind of pick it up and leave it after these events, but um, curious. Yeah. Where, what, what you're thinking, how you think that this, well, obviously what you're thinking in general is always important to me. I'd love to hear that. But on top of that, how you think that this issue is going to play any differently in the next election cycle. Yeah. So as you're talking, it reminded me of something you said earlier, actually, about how the national defense appropriations bill is like sacrosanct. Is that like we're, we're willing to cut all of these things from you know, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, whatever. Everything's on the table except for the defense bill. That seems to me a little bit of, of what's going on here. I've fairly consistently been a Second Amendment defender on on this podcast and in life. But to not have the conversation around the epidemic of gun violence in this country and to try to come up with ways that we can make it less and make our country safer, I think is is irresponsible at at, at best and um obviously really dangerous at worst. And that's one of the things, Ricky, this is where I love doing this with you, but I very much believe that like we should be talking about all of these things. Like if, if you're Republicans and you wanna and you wanna cut spending, then fine. Like I'm not disagreeing that we should talk about the cuts to Medicaid or Medicare or Social Security, but we also have to talk about cutting defense bills. And the instance you named, like there's obviously other issues that Republicans I'm sure will point to, but because gun violence is there are always like a confluence of issues, whether it be mental health or racism or immigration problems or poverty problems, like all of these exist. But to just focus on this guy was an undocumented immigrant or this person was going through gender identity issues versus and not talk about guns at all is irresponsible. Like it's all it all has to be on the table, if in my opinion. And the fact that it's not um, it's it, people that are, are not willing to really engage with the problem then yeah it 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 (laughs) as you were talking it just to me like it feels like it gets back to the the stupid like primary system that we have because it really feels like a conservative republican who is for like responsible gun ownership via like more restrictive gun laws is the kind of politician that you would need in order to engage on meaningful gun reform, right? Like there's a certain defensiveness that is triggered anytime somebody on the left proposes something because it's like, well, they're doing this in order to get our guns eventually, right? So whether it's the slippery slope or whatever it is that President Biden's saying, like, I owned a shotgun once or whatever, like that doesn't help bridge that gap but there are obviously plenty of people who identify as like conservative or conservative leaning who think that the issue of guns in America is crazy. But when they look at their politicians, the only ones that seem electable are the ones that are just devout or yeah, like professors of this, this religion of, of guns and gun culture, which I don't, 
I like, and we've talked about this so much, like how our candidates are just not representative because they keep coming out with the study, like 70%, 75% of Americans are interested in tighter gun regulation, but we don't have really anybody to do anything meaningful on that side. And I, and unfortunately I like to blame Republicans, as you know, for a lot of these issues, but the problem is, I think it's less a conservative problem and more of this systemic issue that we keep getting the most polarizing people who are less interested in actually doing the work of legislating and more interested in like, how can I get on a soapbox? How can I get a viral soundbite? And the way to do that is to say stuff that will either elate uh, 10% of the audience and enrage 50% of the audience more so than getting like the middle 30%. And that's been the, that is like, that is really like for so many of these in seemingly intractable issues that are just not actually intractable because we have probably enough reasonable people that can spot a problem and think like, okay, maybe we don't have the solution, but we can work towards one because we know there's a problem. Instead, we have just like a bunch of people who grandstand and are interested in just like constantly getting folks riled up, whether it's their folks or the folks against them, but not in like doing anything useful. And, oh, man, we should have like front loaded this one. We had some we had some laughable moments (laughs) in the middle. always, Always try to bring me down at the end. All right. Well, look. You know, we'll do Ricky. I had one more topic that we didn't get to, so we'll do a bonus one, so we don't have to end on such a a, a down note. All right, let's do the bonus. Yesterday, May first, was the twelfth anniversary of the United States killing of Osama bin Laden. And while this is the day every year that gets a little bit of, of press, what brought it to my attention again this year was the Washington Post came out this week with. Um, through a freedom of information request from the Obama Presidential Center that's being built in Chicago, they got like a, a treasure trove of behind the scenes pictures from the official White House photographer from that day and night. And it's it it brought back a lot of memories for me, Ricky. And again, so this is 2011. And while it's not on the scale of September 11th or the Boston Marathon bombing, it is one of those moments where I do remember exactly where I was it's it happened uh the announcement started happening in the 10 o'clock hour eastern time uh, president obama came out and made a speech in the 11 o'clock hour and i do remember like feeling like this was a big deal and this uh, president obama gave uh what i thought was an excellent speech and then the you have the camera shots of the people gathering outside the white house um, and cheering and we have shots of you know the air force academy the naval academy at west point and the chance of usa 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 and i believe that we will win and it's I'm getting goosebumps talking about it it was just uh i don't know it, it got me thinking about a lot of things that from that the united states like the dogged you know uh perseverance over the course of those 10 years and to finally hold the person accountable and or at least get revenge in some ways on the person that perpetrated masterminded the September 11th attacks it's uh a credit to like the US military the US intelligence the US leaders there was the sense of 
you know, America, which has been so lacking in some ways. And that's not like rose colored glasses. I know that the Obama years were contentious years. But it also got me thinking like the fact that we had an enemy we could point to brought us together in a way that we haven't had in in a good way in a lot of ways you know like it didn't and i'm i know but it was just like this was like my stream of consciousness was also like this it justifies the bush doctrine in some ways right like we, where have we been fighting the wars in the last 20 years it's been in their their quote-unquote countries right it's been like you bring it to us we're going to bring it to you first and we're going to bring it to you harder and like you will pay for what you did to us and uh, and we and as Obama started off the speech, we got him. Uh, and like so, there's all this like pride in in the United States for killing this guy. It's, it's so I just had like so many emotions uh, and thoughts of, uh, around this date. I'll I'll stop. What you got anything? <laughs> yeah, it, well, I, I when you brought this up, I I actually thought it was interesting, and maybe it won't come as a surprise to to many, but I probably had. Uh, I don't know if an opposite reaction is is the right word. It's definitely not opposite. I I it's almost like indifference. I remember thinking like, hey, everybody is super jazzed about this, but this guy was like, he was like kind of old at this point. He was like holed up in this house or some kind of small apartment in like in a suburb of Pakistan, um, like from like a power perspective kind of very much now divorced from the newer threats of like ISIS. And, um, and obviously, you know, at the, at that time we were still fighting the Taliban largely in Afghanistan. And obviously there was like a bit of a sense of like, okay, cosmic justice, you know, what goes around comes around, you get, you get what you deserve kind of thing. But then there was this like huge, like, okay, we got him. But unlike in, I don't know, if you go back to like other conflicts where you have pretty marquee kind of like leaders on the other side, I mean, World War II is like an easy example. It ends with, you know, you get the leader, he commits suicide or whatever, then you're done. Every, you know, whether there's like a peace accord before or after that event, it's going to happen. Everyone can toss their hat up in the air and be done with it. And I, and I remember like killing Obama was yeah, Obama. Osama, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> wow. You should not do this at this hour in the evening, but it was, was not that like culmination point because we were like almost the, the conflict had gone, had surpassed him or was, was no longer about him. Um, for for so many different reasons, obviously we had Iraq in the intervening years, which was seemingly completely unconnected, and we had uh, we were having these other issues sort of dovetailing out of our involvement in various Middle East conflicts and destabilization and and things like that. And so there was this, yeah. On the one hand, this is probably the the guy that we set out to get in the first place. And we finally got him. But also, like, it doesn't happen like it's in the movies where there's one guy, there's one bad guy and you get to the boss and you and you kill him. And then you're and then, you know, game over, you you win. It's like, well, okay, what next? And I remember, like, during the Trump administration, there was like another person that that we that we got. There was obviously that like Iranian general and there was, you know, similar 
these are bad people and we got them. And it's like, yeah, good for us. But also like, now what? And well, like what? <laughs> I'm sure we, we've like now removed one, one more bad actor from doing some bad things, but in the grand scheme, and I don't know. I don't know. It's like we're patting ourselves on the back, but how much is this act actually accomplishing? And in the specific case of Osama bin Laden, I don't think it was much because at that point, his like he was no longer the face of their of like the sort of I don't know, the terrorist movement is probably not not what they would call themselves, but like, you know what I mean, of 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 sort of the resi- the resistance fighters in those regions were not following his action, his direction anymore. They had their own sex and their own leaders and their own whatever um, things. And so it was, yeah, it was like triumphant in a way, but I don't know if hollow is the right word. I think, I think to some degree it, it, it's like, it makes you feel better, but does it actually, is it the the thing that cures you? Perhaps not. One last thought on this is that I do remember that feeling of like American pride and for better or for worse, it was over the killing of someone. And we've talked about extensively when we've reflected on September 11th and and things like that, where this, and I know that we, you and I and people in general didn't all feel this, but there was a a more collective sense of unity and country and all for one, one for all. Um, you don't wonder if you can get that back outside of like these these terrible events. Yeah, that's like uh, when, like when you see it, it's so and you feel you feel it. You more than you see it, you feel like oh my goodness, this is in the flags and everyone's just, everyone's you know got a little pep in their step. And it's like I don't I don't know that it's possible, and it certainly seems farther than ever from possible these days in some ways. But like when you feel that uh, that sense of of unity and pride in in the United States, it's. Uh, it's something to strive for, I guess. Yeah. You you wish we could channel it in a way that wasn't just about like unity yep. in in like hatred for somebody or some force or some country or whatever, but that seems to be the best way to unify everybody in a single direction. And that uh, that's an like an interesting observation of sort of perhaps like the human condition is that like we're distracted and we don't just like bicker amongst ourselves and if our bickering hopefully sort of stays at that level um you know maybe we can go on but like in order to really get everybody on the same page you have to find something that they can all agree to hate together yeah i mean there's definitely like evolutionary biological reasons for that but we can we can hope like the angels of our better nature type thing. But yeah. all right, Rick, we despite uh, trying to limit ourselves, I think we 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 slightly exceeded the, the time that we set. But um, we appreciate you taking some time away from the golf course and the golf sim to to give us your thoughts on some of the issues of the day. What what do we call this like seven in seventy five, perhaps? It's a bonus. People didn't have to listen to the bonus. This was this was for the people, Rick. Yeah, yeah. for the people. Till next time. Yeah. Yeah.
We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands, folks of different minds Because even though it did not share Pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old main street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days will leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for. The hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz